So I'm back with Matt McGregor to, to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. Let's get right into it. Defense navigation capabilities. DOD is developing PNT, that's precision navigation and timing technologies to complement GPS from the GAO. Quote, DOD's alternative PNT science and technology portfolio explores two approaches to improve sensors to provide PNT information. Relative PNT technologies include inertial sensors and clocks to allow platforms to track its position and keep track of time without external signals like GPS. Absolute PNT technologies allow for a platform to use external sources such as celestial and magnetic navigation, as well as the use of very low radio frequencies or low Earth orbit satellites to transmit information. Officials from across DOD and experts told GAO that Alternative PNT solutions are not prioritized within the DoD. You would, you'd expect that alternative PNT would be one of the top priorities in DoD. You've been hearing recently that they've been doing a lot of tests and exercises in GPS denied types of environments. So I'm sure this will be a growing sense, a growing issue, and we'll be hearing more about it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think part of the reason, probably, why there hasn't been more investment in the alternative technologies is there's been so much investment in GPS. I mean, we think we did put a lot of our cards in that basket and M-Code, which was some of those satellites have just been launched, you know, fairly recently. They're still building up the constellation, but we we're way behind in getting all of the different systems upgraded to be able to use M-Code. So all of our missiles, all, all of our planes, soldier soldiers equipment, all that user equipment that supports GPS. So I think the department has been playing catch up a lot with that, that the monies for these other technologies has been probably a little bit more scarce, but yeah, I think there is a realization that we have to have something because if you're in certain environments, especially, you know, where China has microwave dishes pointed all over the place and jamming all the different RF frequencies and stuff. It's going to be, could be pretty hard to get the signal you need, but, but yeah, there's, I will say there has been some, there's been different research projects going on in this. So I think as soon as the will is there, I think this could happen fairly quickly. I think the, I think there's been a lot going on behind the scenes there. Now it's just whether do you continue to do the M code thing or do you change course? I think the one thing that I took from this article that was really important that I don't think I really thought about that in the, that much in the past is clarifying the level of performance needed for the platforms. I think we've always just said you need the best, best level navigation, best quality navigation solution you can possibly get. But if you think about it, you need that for weapons, for missiles, but maybe you don't need that for an ISR platform. Maybe you could use geospatial or some other methodology. So I thought that was pretty good. I think that's something the department could probably do some work on and say, okay, we have all these systems. What are their requirements? Yeah, the one I'm stoked on is the mapping the magnetic fields of Earth and then using that. There was a little while ago, I had an article or a blog post where, you know, one of the former Air Force chief scientists was saying, quote, military coded GPS three signals. So that's the M code that you were talking about will still be incredibly yeah. weak compared to the strength of signals commonly used to disrupt them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it seems like he, he was pretty down on it. And I just went into the J books for the FY21 and found like nine program elements of about 1.8 billion for GPS. 
And then I could just find one program element for alternative precision navigation and timing, which was only about 7 million. I'm sure there's a bunch of other efforts couched under different programs and activities, but 7 million versus 1.8 billion, <laughs> putting all of your eggs in one basket there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on, I'm with you on liking the magnetic thing. I think, what is it? I read some article recently. That's how sharks navigate. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Next one we got here, Bernie Sanders blasts defense contractors over soaring costs, vows tougher oversight from the Washington Post. Quote, we have a very powerful military industrial complex. I don't think they get the scrutiny that they deserve, Sanders says. He added that the chief executives of major defense contractors earn close to 100 times more than the secretary of defense, despite the fact that in the case of Lockheed Martin and others, the lion's share of their revenue comes from the federal government. In many ways, something like Lockheed Martin really is a federal agency, Bernie said. So here we go again. And Bernie Sanders, now the, the new chair of the budget committee on, on the Senate side, gives him some powerful sway. To, I think he invited a number of defense contractor representatives to come testify, and none of them <laughs> accepted uh, his offer. But it's interesting. This is the same kind of language that we've been hearing about for 50 or more years that large defense primes either are directly <laughs> adjacent arms or something like that of the federal government, or if not totally reliant on them. And what does that mean for the kind of relationship? I wonder, I think Roper opened the box to this last year when he said that the aviation industry might have to become nationalized, which was a stunning statement at the time, but we'll see what happens as, as the, whether the progressives can really get the, the hearings and the oversight and the changes they want. Yeah. I guess I, I don't disagree much with Bernie on this. About, he said military industrial complex versus military industrial uh, com congressional complex, right? Come on, man. You're part of, you're part of this thing, right? Yeah, that's true. I do think they're, it's funny because I've just been reading Free Freedom's Forge about World War II and Bill Nutzen and all the, how they got all of these basically industry executives to start building planes and automobiles and trucks and all these things for the war effort. And, and there was actually a lot of scrutiny. I don't think I appreciated the level of scrutiny that a lot of those different companies had in terms of what their profits were and executive pay. There was actually a lot of scrutiny on that and limits. And some companies actually had to pay back money after the war. So I think it has gone out of control. I think, and I think this goes to the, one of the other articles you have where it talks about why we can't get more of these vendors. I think it's like the Mitchell report that why we can't get more of our, our big vendors to actually go after innovation and they're so focused on sustainment. And I think it's the profit. It's, I think the profit motive has to be there, but I think it may have gotten off balance where, yeah, you have chief executives making tens of 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year, that's probably maybe not what you would expect for a company that's getting all of their money from the government. So maybe there does need to be some limit. I'm thinking I would never expect legislation that just capped anything. I think that would be unproductive, but maybe legislation that says if a certain percentage of your money comes from federal funds, then we limit the amount of overhead that's allowed that would go to executive pay or something. Maybe there's something to do on that DCAA front on that. But yeah, I don't think he's totally wrong. Where I think he's totally wrong is penalizing cost overruns. I think that would be, that has been tried before and it's, it would be a nightmare because you basically have to go, vet, go back and validate 
what changed? Was the cost estimate high fidelity? Was it at a 50% confidence level? There's so many different variables there. So I hope he doesn't go down that path, but I'm okay if he pokes some of the defense primes a little bit. I think they need to tighten their belt. Should uh, defense prime executives make less money or should government officials actually make more money? <laughs> I think there's yeah. one question there, but yeah, he said something interesting that was like 1%. I forget what it was. It was something like he would dock... Uh, 1%. Yeah, doc 1% for 1% of the, oh no, that's for the auditing thing. That's later. Yeah, that was the audit. We can jump over to that one too. But there was also senators introduced bill to penalize Pentagon for failed audits from the Hill. The bill would require military agencies to pass a full independent look at their finances every year beginning in fiscal year 2022. Each year that any of the agency fails to obtain a clean audit, 1% of their budget would be returned to the treasury department. That, that incentivize it's just a bill right now of course it's not passed into law but i think it's probably similar characters that are <laughs> looking to implement that yeah i won't pretend to know everything about the audit there's a lot of complexity there with the whole fire what's going on with the fire audits i will say this though eric and i think this goes to kind of everything that we've talked about with budget reform is the level of complexity in the in the defense acquisition system is so overwhelming. You only have to look at the budget docs, the J books to, to see that. It's so overwhelming to manage that I, I, I have to, I have to imagine that's a, a big part of, that's a big contributing factor to why we don't have cleaner audits. If we had small, if we had portfolios with different little uh, larger buckets of money contributing to these, you know, capabilities, if we had something that was more manageable, you would be able to get better insight into it. I think oversight would be more effective, but I also think like audits and things like that, it would be a lot easier to do because you wouldn't have to go through a system. I've done this before where just take one service and go through their financial system and see the amount of records that are generated within a month. It is astronomical. So yeah. So I think there's contributing factors to why the audits are so hard. Yeah. We also push a lot of that complexity onto contractor financial systems and yeah, obviously contractors, any organization like the Department of Defense is still going to have to keep its books by organization and by object of expenditure. And then, yeah, with the budget, you're really layering in this kind of programmatic structure that needs reconciliation as well. And contractors, they actually keep that separate. They, they have their own cost management system, which is actually usually divorced from their financial reporting system. And they're just mapped back through these complex charge codes, but they try to keep those pretty separate. Um, oh yeah. Especially for the EVM systems and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So next one we got here, actually let's move down to one that you're actually talking about. Aerospace industrial base can't handle the future from the Mitchell Institute, breaking defense. To field advanced capabilities at the speed that our warfighters need, the defense industry needs to expand and business models must shift away from sustaining the past toward developing the future. It also recommends that Air Force quote, resists future participation in any joint aircraft procurement or development programs. Not only are they trying to get the industry to shift away from making all their money in sustainment, so they just need to lock up a program, get it underway, and then get that vendor lock kind of back-end monopoly profits. But they're also saying joint aircraft procurement or development programs shall not be, should resist those. And I wonder to what extent that kind of makes sense as the department's trying to move towards a more modular type of structure. Like, shouldn't the Air Force and the Navy potentially be 
working together on certain mission systems, potentially, even if their aircraft bodies are different. So I'm not really sure exactly, but it feels like that recommendation is still in the view of big bang monolithic programs rather than a kind of future of a more digital century series view of the world. Yeah, that's how I took it too. I, cause I think you're absolutely right. And get all the research and things that have gone into that. There's going to have to be applicability for, for the Navy and actually the Navy's, I think already looking at it. So yeah, if you have modular subsystems and maybe you have, maybe you have different providers of like, I'm almost, I almost think about, I'm almost starting to think about it, the satellite, the space uh, domain where you have, you have a satellite vehicles comprised of a bus and a payload. So you might have different buses maybe that are provided by different vendors. And then you have different payloads that you can put on them, whatever, whatever the mission is for that aircraft. If NGET is as modular as we've been thinking about it, you could see where maybe there's multiple providers of all of the different components. And so it's not just, there's not, there's not one, yeah, like you said, one monolithic thing, but something that you can plug and play different capabilities. So yeah, if I think if we move to actually can move to the digital century series effectively, then I think a lot of this gets, starts to get solved. But I think the point here is still being made that will the industry, will the business models that exist today, will they adapt to, to that NGAD way of being to that digital century model? Is that going to be compelling enough if they can't, if the Northrop's and the Lockheed, if they can't be guaranteed hundreds and hundreds of, to, of guaranteed procurement for a period of time, if they have to compete for it each year, or if the quantities are variable, like I do wonder how much that business model has to change and what the procurement profiles would look like once this comes into play. So I think, I think this report has a, some pretty good points there. Don't worry too much about the, the primes <laughs> getting subjected to a little bit of competition. It's not like they have anywhere else to go. If they're hundred percent relying on government, like trying to move to a government reference architecture, they can put up a fight. If the government really thinks that's the way to go, then they have to play in that. And that doesn't mean that their share necessarily has to go down, but it does give the government the opportunity to replace contractors or pick up on opportunities going forward should the primes not perform as well as the government thinks that they could. So I want to move well, on to us. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I think it will be interesting to watch though, that if we really are able to get modular and we start using 3D printing to do more things, the competition might come from a lot of unexpected places. Like some of these small non-traditionals might actually even some of the existing ones might start playing in this space more and some of the big defense primes might have to, might have to, you know, struggle to keep up. So yeah, I know it'll be interesting to see where it all goes. Staying on the business model front, SOCOM CIO to industry, rethink your business models from CF, <laughs> C4ISRnet. Quote, think about not necessarily always proposing a full stack solution, but instead focusing on providing infrastructure as a service, data as a service, algorithms as a service, and keeping those separate so that we can mix and match them for the next unknown mission. So I think this is getting back to what we're exactly talking about. It may be a little bit more difficult for some folks to think about that in the aerospace industry than potentially other for full up fighters versus other types of systems. But here they're really stressing as a service and how a lot of these kinds of business models in the private sector might be moving there. And it, it would make sense if 
government <laughs> keeps up with that trend so it can be you know commercially relevant yeah and i think this goes to the the point about if you exist in a world where all of the data that you would need access to is available readily available then i think you can really start to play around with some of these things i don't think we're very good at it yet in terms of taking infrastructure as a service pulling in different random algorithms and pulling in maybe some data services. Like, I think that is something we're still maturing, but I think this vision is absolutely dead on. I think this has to be where we go because there's just too much potential out there and the industry is moving and innovating and evolving. In order to keep pace, I think you have to break this apart. And this kind of goes to your thing, Eric, I think about owning the technical stack where, you know, maybe the government, maybe the government is buying all of these things but they, they can integrate them. They have the knowledge to integrate them in, in innovative ways to achieve different mission sets. And so if you have the talent, if you have the right people, then you really can do, you can leverage all the goodness in the commercial sector and do something here like kind of the SOCOM CIO is, is, is envisioning. So. Well, it's not my own the technical baseline <laughs> or own the technical stack. I'm still lost in the woods trying to come out and be like, what are what context does this make sense and when does it not and when does commercial industry have the right thing that government just needs to integrate and when does government need to really get its hands dirty in building components or defining standards that's just <laughs> i feel like that's a very contextual thing that that people need to figure out but yep. definitely need to debate on that next one here is something that we've been talking about so here's just a nice little update Marine Commandant finding a way to modernize with flat budgets from breaking defense. We've shrunk the size of our headquarters by 15%. We've cut legacy programs with support of Congress to keep the pace of modernization effort that includes things like mounting naval strike missiles on the back of JLTVs in order to hit ships from land, buying new generation of drones. Berger has also divested the Corps from Abrams tanks and will shed 12,000 Marines along with towed artillery, aircraft, and helicopters. He has also pledged to reduce the number of F-35s in the squadron while questioning the role of the aircraft will play in his plans going forward. I think there's a lot of discussion these days on what is a legacy system and how do you decide on how to ramp those things back in order to modernize the force to something that's more in line with great comp power competition. The Marines are definitely trying. Certain people probably have their skepticism of just relinquishing fire, straight up firepower for certain things. But the naval strike missile on the JLTV gives you some striking power as well. But I, I just wonder, this is almost like a, an interesting case study. How did they get Congress to go along with this? And how do the other services go the same way? The Marine Corps is much smaller than the rest of the services, except for the Space Force in terms of personnel, at least. But this could be an interesting lesson. And maybe if they're successful is the model for kind of the rest of the services. Yeah, no, I was thinking the same thing. The Marines, I, we, I think the services, the other services should really start uh, looking more closely at how the Marine, operate, Marine Corps operates. Yeah, you have to love this part. I think probably part of the messaging that made this achievable was to say, we're not going to ask for more money. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to meet this new mission set that we think is important for the South China Sea fight, for the thing that most of the congressmen are focused on. So I think one of the things that I read back when the Marine Corps was pushing hard to get the Osprey was that 
Marine Corps has a very effective legislative operation where they're very good at bringing in the right, the right Congress people, the right staffers to, to understand their vision, to understand their changes. Like they, they really have a good messaging operation and they make them part of the, make them part of the decision-making process. So I have to imagine that behind the scenes there, this may have been in the work for years in terms of talking about it and socializing it. I bet this did not just pop out of the blue. So yeah, I think there's a lot that other services could learn for when you're trying to divest of, of a particular platform, you know, how to do that in a way that's palatable, but yeah, you got to give it to the Marine Corps for reinventing themselves and finding a way to do it. I guess we'll see, I guess we'll see how many F-35s they can push off though, because the F-30B was made special for them. So if they try to not buy any F-35s, I do suspect they will get some of them pushed back on them. So that'll be interesting to watch. <laughs> and their model may have corrupted some of the designs of the other versions, right? In order, <laughs> and then they just bail out of it. That, that yeah. would be an interesting uh, outcome, but not completely unexpected. So the next one we have here is Absent can now generate air tasking orders in the cloud from Air Force Magazine. For example, by being able to access Slapshot and Jigsaw, Kratos, which is the system that they've deployed to the Air Operations Center, can link the range and armament of F-15s with the availability of KC-135s to quickly plan operations to build the ATO from anywhere with less people. And ATO in that context is air tasking order, I believe, right? <laughs> authority to operate. We took <laughs> quote, we took some risks in Absent because it's not the system of record yet, not programmed as a system of record, he said. We're taking a little risk or a little trial and error to get there, but it's really effective and it's working. I like that last part there. We've been we've been reporting on how Kessel Run has been delivering the minimum viable capability for the Air Operations Center. But it's just interesting, right? Because I think you and I, we push back on even the concept of a program of record as being a relevant method of defense management and oversight. And here they're saying, it's not a program of record. We're taking that risk, but it's really effective and working. So I would hope that it seems like a lot of the other alternative acquisition pathways that have been popping up, there's a big effort to make those more regimented and formalize that process back into programs of record, whereas in the early days, it was freewheeling a little bit more. Maybe this is hopefully some empirical evidence of there being some logic to the non-program of record route. Yeah. And I think there's a perception too, that because you're not a program of record, quote unquote, meaning that really what a program of record means in terms of practice, like in terms of the bureaucracy, it just means that you exist on an acquisition master list of some sort that says this is a acquisition program and it has all the kind of requisite stuff, but it doesn't mean just because you're not a program of record does not mean that you can't have a really effective product support strategy or a really effective cybersecurity strategy. It's funny, but you can do all of those things really effectively and, and not exist in some list or some reporting system. So yeah, I, I hope to see more of that. I think ABMS is proving that out to some extent and GAD really is proving that out to some extent. So they're not really programs of record. So yeah. I would push back be, yeah. on that because ABMS, it was, they explicitly said, we're not going to be a program of record. Yeah. And then Congress basically slapped them. <laughs> and what's your likelihood of other programs going that route? And NGAD, more, every day, it seems more and more like it's a single aircraft rather than a family of non-program of record-y type 
systems. Oh, I don't know. I'm still holding out for that to be a family. I think it's going to be a family one, but I don't know. Even if you think about ABMS, even if they come up with a cost estimate and they come up with an X strategy, it's got to be very high level because just look at what they're doing just in this next year. I think you, do you have, I think you have an article on that where they're like, they're installing pods on KC46s and stuff like that. Okay. You can make that like a modification program, or you can make that a program of record, but you can't like, you can't make KC46 pods and some sensor you're going to deploy in a UAV. You can't make those together a program of record. Is this going to be like it would just be madness. I think it would be like indecipherable to anybody. So yeah, I still think that they can call ABMS a program of record, but if it continues to be executed the way it is, it's going to have to be different, a lot of different things that come together to provide that overarching capability. But for AOC though, going back to AOC, I do think talking about whether programs of record are effective or not. I think the perfect example is like TBMCS, this theater battle management core system, which is over the years has just been like, a lot of things kludged onto it. It's always been, it was done quickly to get AOCs operating. It was great for the time, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's a clunker. And for a long time, that was really not meeting the needs of the warfighter, which is why they were, you know, screaming at Kessel Run to get them this new capability. So yeah, it's really exciting for them to be able to start retiring that and, and to be able to do things significantly more efficiently for, for operations. It's just too bad. What kind of is ironic to me is that operations in the Middle East seem to be winding down just as the time this is coming on board. So maybe that maybe the timing is a little off there, but yeah, no, I, I hear you on the non-program record. I guess I would just push back in, insofar as you have a bunch of uninitiated outsiders whose responsibility it is to look over certain programs or at least somewhere in the Department of Defense where their interests might lie. And then you have these programs that are like, oh, I'm doing all this stuff and they can't comprehend what's going on. So they think it's just extremely poor management. And I can't say whether there's poor management or great management, good perceptions or bad perceptions of ABMS, but it just seems there's been a messaging issue. And I think it reminds me of kind of Brian McGrath, a former Navy guy. He was saying something interesting. Oh, this PMO says, oh, we fired a tomahawk from a ship and we hit something. And wow, great. You reported that test result from the program office, but it's completely out of context, right? How does that mash up with a larger strategy in terms of where the force structure is going and how that fits into a set of capabilities? There's just like none of that. It's all just like all over the place. And so I feel like that's holding back some of this ability for Congress to understand what's going on. And maybe the Marine Corps does have a better overarching narrative of how they're doing their force structure, but and maybe that's the consequence of kind of the Navy, the Navy's always signaling 30 years ahead of time as well. But and on a related related front here, DOD seeks clean acquisition data for better policy oversight from FCW. There's a little bit of struggle in terms of what data and how they're going to be, how they're going to get transparent data from the services to be able to make smart decisions from OSD level for those programs, Oakley from the GAO said. So th- this was actually a little bit old. There was a hearing in the SAS where they had the GAO, Ms. Cummings, kind of come and talk about oversight, essentially, of the acquisition programs. And Oakley actually mentioned during her statement that it felt like the delegation to the services made them a little bit stronger in pushing back on the Department of Defense in terms of the acquisition data. And there was that report several months ago where they were like, the services don't even know what acquisition. ACAT two and three programs they have. If they don't even have a list, they can't manage anything. They must have no idea what's going on. And then at the same time, Stacey Cummings, she was saying, 
we actually have ample authority to get the data that we need from the services. And we're also like working out this adaptive acquisition visibility uh, data framework as well to go with each pathway. And those are eventually going to get into Advana. And I guess there's kind of two sides of the story here, but this kind of gets back to our program of record thing, right? Is there a list of the program and what is baseline is? And that's our version of oversight. And I wonder what will those metrics be? And then how useful will those metrics be to actually understanding the, pro- the program in its context in this broader viewpoint, as I was just pointing out, like in the Brian McGrath view of having a coherent narrative and force structure view and where these things fit in. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Ms. Cummings is probably, is trying to convey something that I don't know that is appreciated quite yet, which is the more important thing is to look across the practices that programs are are doing. So it's not just about you have an acquisition program baseline. Did you meet your cost threshold? It's a lot more about, did you provide the value to the warfighter that they needed? Did you, were, did you use different contract vehicles that enabled you to get the best performance in the quickest amount of time? Were, were you able to foster competition because maybe you did pro, a, lot of, a lot more prototyping, more players were smaller, players were able to actually compete for some larger work. There's just a lot of different, I think there's a fixation on thresholds and baselines. And I think that there's just a much bigger world out there of things that should be looked at in terms of oversight and insight. And so I think that's what she was getting at is that, hey, let's look at the trends. Let's look, then then our, our policy and oversight can actually, maybe there are things you can start to nudge in the right direction so that if everyone's using fixed price contracts and they're not working, you go, yeah, maybe you should start looking at other types of contracts, or maybe you should look at using CSO to, to get more innovation from small vendors. Just I think there's a lot out there and I think she's trying to broaden the aperture a little bit. Not sure if that's totally appreciated by the GAO folks that were at that hearing, but. The next one we got here, GM Defense pursuing JLTV contract from GM Authority itself. Quote, by producing the JLTV, we can also reduce the risk for the army. We can bring in our industrial commercial base to bear on those pieces. And we would love to have a split buy. That's probably what we will propose for the JLTV that the DOD split it and we take 30 to 50% of it. Interim president of GM Defense, Tim Herrick said. He also said this, we purchased or rented two JLTVs. We actually took one of them and then we brought it back and tore it down in Warren. So a couple of observations here is one, for large kind of hardware programs, usually people say you can't recompete those, it's too expensive, It, it doesn't really make too much sense. But then when they say you should go do that, we need to order all the technical data and the technical, like the production package in order for a different contractor to be able to produce it. You buy it and you price that on the contract, right? You buy it, you deliver it. It looks like GM was just like, screw it. Just give me two JLTVs and I'm just going to tear <laughs> it down. I don't need, I don't need their like spe- engineering specifications. We're, we just want a complete copy of a physical system and we'll figure it out on ourselves as long as we have the rights to deconstruct it. I loved it. Yeah. I thought that was awesome too. It's, I think they're making the point like this isn't rocket science. This is a vehicle. We make all these commercial vehicles. We can make a military vehicle. Again, like in World War II, that's how they did it. And a lot of times the designs would be wrong or when the production shop would get something from the development shop, 
they would tear it down and be like, we should do it better, like in this way. And yeah. they would just tear things down and, and figure it out piece by piece. And that's how they got like Willow one run running up right on the, the B-17s. Took them a little while, but I, I think that was a little bit of a different issue. No, you're right though. Like there's probably some things that it occurred to me to the, in the process of tearing it down and building it back up, they probably identified all kinds of things that I bet if given the chance, they would say, you should improve this or you should change that. I bet they had a lot of ideas after they tore the whole thing down. But I, I think just in general though, this is something that I think it goes to the Mitchell report we just talked about, which is, hey, we don't have that much competition and we don't have that many vendors producing things is, hey, let's do more split buys. Let's produce something, make sure the government has uh, the rights to it and, and pawn it off to different vendors. Maybe some are using more 3D printing than others, or maybe they have different techniques, but I think we need to do this, especially as we buy less complex, higher quantity systems, because when you have a split buy, I don't think that there's a lot of acquisition history on this. I don't think there's anything more incentivizing for contractors than to say, to know, Hey, I got this lot, but the next lot I'm going to have to compete again. And if I lose, I only get 30%, but if I win, I get 70%. That to me is like the height of incentive in, uh, contract incentive. So I hope we do more of this. This is great. Yeah. One of the famous ones was the A10 ammunitions, the depleted uranium. Ah. That one, I think they actually went to 90-10 and they had two suppliers and it was just like whoever came out up with the lowest price would actually win the 90 and then <laughs> it'd go back and forth. And they actually drove the price down because the gun was actually one of the like highest risk of uh, technologies in the A-10 system. Yeah, huh. it's, it's interesting to, to think about that and where there is enough commercial kind of overlap and to the extent that you make systems less exquisite, I suppose you you increase your industrial base. But speaking of 3D uh, printing and intensity there, Aerojet Rocketdyne's new 3D printed rocket engine passes NASA's hot fire testing from 3D printing industry. Quote, during the trials, the company's new RL10CX upper stage engine featuring an additive manufactured injector and combustion chamber demonstrated ignition and long-term durability within, within in-space simulations. Developed alongside the United Launch Alliance, ULA, the RL-10CX has been built to propel the next-gen Vulcan Centaur launch vehicle. And the Vulcan Centaur started about in 2014, and its expected launch is this year, 2021. And the cost is somewhere, uh, Wikipedia says, between 82 and 200 million. <laughs> I thought this was pretty interesting. And it is, it's amazing that 3D printing can actually do the injection injector and the combustion chamber because I just don't even understand how the combustion chambers withstand that kind of pressure and heat in the first place. It's all like amazing to me. Oh yeah, no, I agree. Is it, it's crazy. It's crazy that 3D printing. I remember when it, when 3D printing was first becoming a thing, and people were talking about using it for aerospace parts and stuff. I was always like, yeah, I guess you could like use it for developing like fasteners or like the interior of the plane. Like I just never thought we would get to the point where we're like using it for fighter jets and rocket engines. It's incredible. It just shows you the dynamism in the commercial sector and how when they when they put their mind to something, they really, it just happens. Later on in that article, this is this one really stuck out at me too. It's like, they were talking about how NASA's actually been conducting a lot of research into additive manufactured parts, engine components specifically, and that they completed all these hot fire tests 
and that the opt the quote here is the optimized the printed parts proved capable of withstanding more extreme heat than their conventional counterparts. So I don't even know how that works, but 3D printing is not just equal. In some cases, it sounds like it's even better. So crazy times. Crazy times indeed. The next one we got, Vigor wins U.S. Navy availability contract for independence class LCS from Naval News. Vigor will begin support on Gabriel Gifford's LCS 10 in June and USS Omaha LCS 12 in September. Approximately 165 employees are expected to work on the ships during their stays. The overall contract for both vessels is valued up to $110 million. So it's just, I, I just thought this one was hilarious because it's just like, these maintenance contracts are absurd. <laughs> I think like the ships were touted 350 million is my rec recollection. And then it's like your operations, like you're buying that again, every couple years, two to three years. I think we were showing in the last a few episodes ago, it was like 70 million or more annually to operate, but they got 165 employees here doing some contract maintenance work. It's like, how many people are on the ship? 30, something like that. <laughs> like <laughs> These things are maintenance intensive. It's crazy. Yeah. Very maintenance. -intensive. I don't know if that 110, if that was like over 10, over five years or something. I sure hope so. I hope it's not. No, just okay. Yeah. That would be, that would be pretty incredible. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like we've bashed LCS enough. So um, retired already, please Navy. But yeah, it sounds like these guys who are working on this ship are, are going to have business for a while. Actually, I don't know. They don't say the time frame of the contract it's just 100 i think it's just gonna they're just gonna overhaul it and send it back out so it's gonna be 50 50 million though you think for each well oh it is the overall contract yeah for both vessels oh holy cow so i just did the quick math on that it comes out to almost six six hundred almost seven hundred thousand dollars a person for the 165 people is not That's pretty good work to labor costs right i know i'm just i know there's material stuff <laughs> But what we got here next is new NASA administrator citing China missions calls for sustained support in Congress from CBS News. Quote, China plans to send multiple landers to the South Pole of the moon in the not too distant future. And same area. And this is the same area NASA is targeting for its Artemis program. I want to see this photo. I want you to see this photograph, he said in the virtual hearing, holding up a <laughs> photograph taken this week by China's Zhu Rong rover. We successfully landed on Mars last week. China's making some strides and getting the tensions heated up. It's not just DOD looking, exciting, great power competition for give me more money, but it's also NASA. And I think the, the instigating factor there was they had a $3 billion request for the Artemis program and it went down to $850 million, And that's why they only gave it to uh, SpaceX, as we reported earlier. Yeah. But in my view, it's just first, if they had more flexibility between their programs, I'm sure they would be like, Let's get rid of SLS. There's plenty of money in SLS, right? Yeah. Like if you're going to put something at risk, SLS is already an at-risk program and is only surviving, to my knowledge, because of political support. So I'm sure more is going on there, but SLS is just is just eating so much money and it might not even be viable next to a SpaceX heavy launch. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think you hit all the key points. I just think the one thing that stuck out at me was the NASA's mission to me was always about science. And it's funny to see the NASA administrator 
just because China is doing something good, I guess it's weird to say we need more money to do something better. It's, if it's all kind of advancing science, it seems like it should all be within NASA's, all the international stuff that they do anyway. So it's funny to use China as a means to, uh, to say we need more money. But yeah, it's interesting. I think China probably, to some extent, looked at how the U.S. evolved and said, we really learned a lot from our NASA missions. We advanced science and technology. We, we, there was a lot of like secondary applications that came out of a lot of that research. So it seems to me that they're just, they're looking at how we developed in some ways and saying, hey, there's value here. Let's go explore space and use that, probably some of those findings to advance our economy and advance probably the PLA. Yeah. I'm not so down on it. Like that's the good kind yeah. of competition, right? Who can get to yeah. Mars faster? That's it, it, that's a good kind of competition and it, it isn't so military nature, even though it does have military overtones. But next one we got, Special Operations Command is now seeking a high-speed VTOL aircraft from the drive. Quote, Special Operations Command and AFWORKS Technology Incubator have also teamed up to explore the potential for HS VTOL, that's high-speed VTOL aircraft. The aim of this AFWORKS challenge is to gain ideas on new platforms that would combine high performance with helicopter-like characteristics and offer, quote, optimal agility in austere environments, according to AFWORKS. Submissions for the HS VTOL have been broken down into integrated solutions covering systems concept, design, and architecture, and subsystem solutions, including advanced propulsion and novel technologies. So I guess there's a couple of interesting things here. One, the teaming up of AFWORKS with the SOCOM kind of partner here. The second is that SOCOM is actually looking for uh, a tilt rotor, it seemed like, because they were putting them in uh, DARPA put like 850 million or something into the Bell Boeing kind of vehicle that they have for the FAR contract, which is a tilt rotor. And then we were reporting a couple of weeks earlier, remember there was that article saying Army, do not pick a, a tilt rotor because yeah. of, of it. And, but AFWORKS, apparently they're pretty keyed in on this. They need optimal agility in austere environments. So they're looking to solve those same problems that I think the commenter was writing on. But then the last part here is also that they're modularizing the whole program into integrated solutions and subsystem solutions. So right from the start, they don't want like a fully integrated system. And that would seem to me to indicate that Bell, Boeing kind of team there might not be in the lead for this. Yeah, maybe that's right. I don't know. I When I look at all this, I think back to like us not learning lessons on the V and trying to get, I think the V-22 is used, it's been effective, but there were really good arguments about some of the things that could have been done just as effectively with some minor advances in helicopter technology. So this is one of those things where I do wonder if SOCOM isn't pursuing an overly exotic solution. The risk in this seems very high to, to come up with very new technologies that have not been demonstrated. They're going to have to do just oodles and oodles of testing. I could see this taking like 10 years to perfect. Just reading through all the different things and everybody's saying, oh boy, this is really hard. This has never been done. You look at even some of the models about how the wings would work in terms of they would produce thrust down. And then once they get to a certain point, then they would change without actually like moving and then start going forward. Like you can just see all the issues popping up with that. The F-35B engine took forever to produce, had lots of issues, took a lot of time and there's still limitations with it. So I just don't know why they're going so exotic, but 
Yeah, this will be interesting to watch and to see who who gets involved in the the AFWorks concept challenge, see how many commercial players they have in this, but I'm not feeling good about this effort personally. Yeah, maybe you're right. I was scratching my head a little bit um, as well, but it's not clear how operational they're trying to get and how fast. Maybe it's just like a concept exploration, but it's a weird it's a weird place to, to be doing concept exploration. They could be doing a lot more synergies with other offices and maybe AFWorks is helping coordinate a lot of that stuff. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what comes out of it. You know, you, so- you know, you know what I thought before I clicked on the article, you know what I actually thought they were getting after and I got excited was some of the stuff that had been done at AFWorks with the flying car. Oh I, yeah. I, the agility prime. Agility prime. Yeah. I was exactly. Yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking, Oh, this is great. I was like, SOCOM is well, going that's to- not high speed and that's not going to get the speed in the range that they're looking for in this operational mission. I'm, I'm assuming. No, but think about it though. What you'd have to scale it a little bit, but what if you had small teams, right? These are SOCOM has fairly small teams. Why couldn't you, why couldn't you build on some of the agility prime demonstrations to build low flying? Yeah. They're not going to be super high speeds. It seems like there's some potential there. Survivability through dispersion. Yeah. And then maybe some of the, maybe you could drop those off from a C-130 from altitude or something. And they could come down. I, I don't know. It just seems like there's a, like a lot of potential there. And I got excited for a minute until I saw the whole yeah, syllable concept thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting thought. And I tend to want to agree with you. That would have been a very interesting way to go about it. Doubling down on, on that move, especially towards commercial, because there's no way what's coming out of that's going to be commercially relevant. So no. it would have. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It, it feels like Afworks, like their whole driving philosophy would have been to try to merge those efforts, but I'm sure they tried and I'm sure SOCOM was just probably not interested, which sounds funny to me, but let's move on to the U S air force's sixth generation fighter engine completes testing from aerospace magazine. The GE engine called XA 100 uses an adaptive cycle design that provides high thrust mode for maximum power and a high efficiency mode for fuel savings and loitering time. These innovations increase thrust 10%, improve fuel efficiency by 25%, and provide significantly more heat dissipation capacity, all within the same physical envelope as current propulsion systems. So I thought this one was just interesting because we've been hearing about adaptive cycle engines for a while. This was actually the first time I've heard the, the estimates of increased thrust and in improved fuel efficiency of 10% and 25%. And so I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. So this is the the history. Some of the history behind this is a little bit that F-35 used to have two engine programs and then it got Pratt & Whitney went out and they're the single engine provider, but GE was the other engine provider. So the Air Force always knew like having one engine provider was never a really good thing. So they started this adaptive, adaptive, this adaptive engine program, and it's been going on for quite a while under kind of a prototyping funding line and they've just been chipping away at it. So this to me is really the, this is the first time I've seen, like those have always been the goals to increase the thrust and fuel efficiency, but this is the first time I've seen that they've actually tested and demonstrated that those predictions can actually be be achieved. So this is a huge milestone. So yeah, I think GE and the team running this deserve some credit because this is going to be really a game changer for just think about like range just by the fuel efficiency, 25%, like 
the amount of range, extra range you get with that is just going to be huge. Yeah. I guess I was a little bit underwhelmed by the the figures there. 25% fuel efficiency. We can just translate that into range, right? I guess it's, it's not really clear to me because when they're in fuel saving mode, what is that efficiency increase versus like when you're going to maximum power and all that? And how does it actually net out? I'm not really sure, but I feel like a JSF, for example, could have easily gotten 25% more range, just <laughs> better overall design. <laughs> but, you know, I guess it's still interesting. And I guess we'll see if the sixth gen, I wonder if the NGAD will, will feature this engine. Oh, I think it will. Absolutely. I, I will say though, I, I, I didn't fully appreciate it until I actually got to see more design specs about Man, like some of these engines, the complexity and the level of precision is just like insane. The, this is really, to me, this is like more complicated. I think some of the jet engines are more complicated than even some of the rocket stuff, just in terms of just how the size that it has to be and how it integrates and all the things that have to occur inside that thing. It's really, it's really impressive. I hope that that once they get this to a certain point, they'll start to, they'll start to show more about what makes it so unique and show how show how hard it was <laughs> hopefully they can show that yeah we'll we'll see what it has in store for us next one we got here is here's how the army will use 120,000 microsoft hololens headsets in battle from fast company ivas which is the program overseeing this is said to help soldiers sight and identify enemy combatants as well as provide night vision and thermal imaging one application he suggests is putting sensors Rather than soldiers in harm's way, the sensors will act as external eyes, their view accessible through the headset. And here's another related article on getting a little bit more into that. U.S. Army aviation exercise unveils unprecedented progress as a service preps for future war from Defense News. The crew at Exercise Edge 21 received IVAS integrated visual augmentation system goggles, uh, which is the HoloLens we're just talking about, as well as tablets that provide to-the-minute mission updates based on real-time intelligence collected from air-launched effects sensors. In the past, you got an update before you go out on an aircraft and then flew half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour, whatever it was what it was when you got there. So <laughs> not only are they, is the Army, we're learning that what they're looking to use the HoloLens for, it doesn't just have the night vision and thermal imaging, which I was aware of. They're going to like tap into a bunch of sensors and potentially command those sensors and even connect to shooters as well, based on that information through the HoloLens. They've actually been testing it in this way as well, like physically. So that's pretty exciting. And it only, it makes me wonder if Elon Musk's Neuralink actually works out. Could you actually use that in these hollow lenses and then you don't have to go through an interface it's just like at the command of your brain speed right yeah yeah the neural thing yeah that i don't know i don't know how close that is to reality but that would be pretty (laughs) awesome (laughs) yeah this is pretty cool i remember seeing back like when the future combat system thing uh, program was started back when and i remember seeing like pictures of what the future soldier would look like and i just remember there being like lots of ipads like lots of things that they like Soldiers had to look down and stare at and do all this, do all this kind of thing to play around. And, and it always struck me as, is that, is that what a soldier wants to do is be looking down like when they're in battle? So this to me is like the logical, IBAS is really just taking this to the logical next step of allowing the soldier to, to actually be able to maintain situation awareness, do what they need to do and be able to display the information they need to get in a way that's like easily accessible 
without them like having to pull out their iPad or something. Yeah, this is awesome. I, it's, it seems like this is, these things are only going to get better, more, more advanced and more capable over time. Yeah. So one to keep an eye on. This one kind of, in some ways, rallies back to our PNT talk at the start. DARPA likely to demo only two blackjack payloads from breaking defense. Quote, blackjack satellites probably will end up carrying a radio frequency system capable of both communications and geolocation and an overhead persistent radar OPIR missile warning payload. More than a dozen companies from defense behemoths to tiny startups are currently under blackjack contracts. We've been hearing about blackjack quite a bit. It's, I believe, supposed to be a proliferated architecture. It's interesting that they're going to go for OPIR. And is that competing with next-gen OPIR? But it's also cool that they're going to try to figure out geolocation with this. So here's some more funding towards PNT that's not in, that's not readily you know, accessible just by looking at JBooks. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it will compete because I think next-gen OPIR is going to be like, it's going to be one of those super exotic platforms that's has some pretty substantial capabilities. But I think this might be something that maybe for missions that are not in the MDA, in the MDA domain, maybe this could be used for tracking missile launches or aircraft things. Like it could be used for more tactical. I could see some of these LEO satellites OPIR Leo satellites being used for more tactical type things. Yeah, it's be interesting to see how this is going. I, I am interested in how it, it seems like we have a lot of government agencies out there launching these cheaper satellites. So I am interested in how DARPA is playing with the Space Development Agency or is playing with uh, Space RCO. Like Space RCO is supposed to do operationally responsive stuff. So I I do remain curious about how all those, how that, that coordination is happening. And if there's like a lot of duplicability or if they're deconflicting all these, all these efforts or not, but yeah, definitely a lot of potential here. Well, this statement here from someone involved with the Blackjack project was actually quite disconcerting to me. Space acquisition, especially when it comes to Leo is going to be resolved at a pay grade much higher than mine. So I'm fortunate. I'm in a fortunate situation where since Blackjack is forced, is focused on architecture to me, it doesn't really matter who acquires the architecture. I think it should matter to you who acquires the architecture. That's the whole point, right? Nobody plays and, and this is duplicative or, or not providing the capability operators need, then that's a problem in my view. I feel like he should be worried about what's on the other end of that, that, that valley of death here for <laughs> the blackjack. Maybe he was, I, I'm reading down further in that article, and I think I missed this last part, where it's supposedly all these satellites are dem are aimed at demonstrating capability for space development agencies, national defense space architecture. So I, I guess I have to read up more on the national defense space architecture, but I guess it's supposed to be conforming uh, to those standards. Maybe that's what it sounds like there at the end of that article, but yeah, I feel like I need to dig into this one a little bit more maybe. Yeah. that That's an interesting point though if the tarp is not going to go into kind of a full rate production type thing here with all this and do the major acquisition so yeah where do they stop and who picks that up and i don't know we'll see that's what i want to get to here before we wrap up teledyne flare merger creates a tactical drone powerhouse from breaking defense teledyne builds a range of water going drones both unmanned surface vehicles and unmanned underwater vehicles with the largest being the 18-foot Sea Raptor. FLIR builds a host of small aerial drones and ground robots from the tiny Black Hornet, which can take off from your hand, to the Cobra, 
whose mechanical claw can lift 330 pounds. The combined company isn't imposing a single common set of standards on all of its projects, although many already use commercial open architectures, but it's pushing for a new design philosophy it calls advanced common software systems architectures. The goal, Wells tells me, is for everything to be interoperable and integratable out of the box, not only with other Teledyne Fleer products, but with ongoing military programs such as handheld attack and ATAK and the IVAS goggles. So I got to admit, we were concerned there about whether the big primes would play in, in this kind of more open system architecture world, whether that's commercial or government reference. But if not them, other folks are definitely willing to go play there and look at that as an expanding market share. It's interesting. FLIR obviously has the infrared that for the army, but it seems like they're doing a lot of other stuff as well. And I'm just, it's interesting that not only that they merged, this seems like another kind of horizontal merger that seems to be pretty okay with most folks and Teledyne FLIR aren't exactly huge, but I love that they're going with the commercial open architectures. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in learning more about what their advanced common software system architecture is comprised of. I, I have to imagine it's probably something like, you know, that we've been talking to like Tim Grayson about stitches or something. It, it probably is something where self, it's software enabled and it just allows interoperability by, by those type of means. But yeah, I think you're right. The, I think that the major defense primes, there's a lot of focus on like these, the big monster drones, but man, there's a lot of potential in this smaller space. And you can see where you can see where companies start to get on board with common standards, just because there's so many different options and the innovation potential is this huge to come out with like new products that are better or more tailored for a particular mission or whatnot. Like I think the competition in this space is just going to continue to grow. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty cool to watch, but yeah, it looks like Teledon has a little bit of a, a little bit of a jump on some of the- Yeah. It just seems it's a long and wise view to go for a more open architecture because you want people to build on top of your thing and make your thing better. And that makes it super defensible as well. Like for example, with the IVAS goggles, I'm sure what's going to make those work or not work is mostly the software and you're not going to like flood people with too much information. And they're always like focusing on that and dismissing notifications. And so the software is going to be like a huge game changer in a lot of these things. And maybe Teledyne and Flare don't have the greatest autonomous stuff. And maybe they, they recognize that and want to be able to bring stuff in. And those types of things are what's going to really add value to your product and be a force multiplier rather than I have the proprietary thing. Once they buy it, then they have to keep coming to me. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> and that, that'll wrap this up for the week. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, Matt McGregor. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.